So Smart Podcast, episode 242. I am Andrew Ryan, and I'm here to ask you a question. Is a man not entitled to the sweat of his brow? No, says the man in Washington. It belongs to This audio you're hearing is from the beginning of a video game, Bioshock, which is one of my favorite video games, one of my favorite works of art. And at this point in the story of that game, you, the player, are descending under the ocean deep, deep, deep inside a bathysphere headed into the underwater city of Rapture. I rejected those answers. Instead, I chose something different. I chose the impossible. I chose Rapture. A secret metropolis built by Andrew Ryan, who greets you with this recorded message over the speakers inside the bathysphere as you get closer and closer to the city that he built. Rapture can become your city as well. The premise of Bioshock is Andrew Ryan, a play on Ayn Rand, since the game is a critique of the philosophy of objectivism. He's a mega billionaire an oil and railroad tycoon who used his money to build an underwater city in the 1950s to escape the coming nuclear apocalypse. He moves there, invites a group of elites like himself to join, along with doctors and scientists and artists to create a utopia where the laws of religion and government no longer apply, a place, as he puts it, where the parasites can no longer hold them back. It's a great big party for a while, and the scientists do things without anyone regulating them. So do the business people, so do the doctors. So you can imagine how that spins out of control. But eventually, the people they trusted to do the dirty work, security, shipping, manufacturing, etc., they revolt, and they use the bioengineering projects to gain superhuman powers and destroy his deep-sea utopia. And that's where the game begins. You go into that world right as it's crumbling. I was reminded of Bioshock when recently I spent some time with the great prolific cyberpunk journalist Douglas Rushkoff, who revealed something absolutely astonishing to me, that there are quite a few billionaire preppers in the world. Preppers. Billionaire preppers who are actually trying to do things like this And that's the premise of his new book, The Survival of the Richest, which was inspired by Rushkoff's first-hand experience with a group of billionaire preppers who invited him out to a secluded private location to... Well, I'll let him tell you that story, which comes from a bit deeper in the interview. 
but I wanted you to hear this part first. And after this, we'll go back to the beginning of the interview to hear our entire conversation. Here's Douglas Rushkoff. And I'm waiting in the green room, you know, kind of preparing my little talk on the digital future, you know, where I usually talk to these billionaire types and I, I want to, you know, instill them with some conscience or talk to them about circular economics and how it's a better long-term business strategy than extraction and crash and burn and whatever they do, their scorched earth monopolist strategy. And instead of bringing me out or miking me up or whatever, these five guys are brought into the green room and they sit around this little table. It's like a poker game. And they start asking me these questions about the future, you know, the typical kind of betting questions, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, augmented reality or virtual reality. And eventually they get around to uh, Alaska or New Zealand. So, the whole rest of the talk is about their bunker strategies. You know, how are they going to survive the event is what they called it. You know, the coming uh, economic catastrophe, climate crisis, a nuclear fallout, uh, uh, you know, pandemic that's going to take the whole world down. And the, the majority of the time they're talking about they know their money's going to be worthless and they want to know how do they maintain control of their security staff when their money no longer has value. So it's this weird, walking dead, awful scenario planning thing. I'm like, do they get robots or shock collars? Or do they the only one with the combination to the safe that has the food? <laughs> and I'm, This is bonkers. It's bonkers. And these are such well. And I'm just like thinking, my God, these are the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world. Yet they seem um, uh, to believe that the event is an inevitability over which they have absolutely no control, that the best they can do is prepare for the inevitable collapse of society. And I'm trying to tell them, well, you know, the way to get your head of security to take care of you in the future is like, pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm being a little sarcastic with them because I find them so pathetic. But what I'm trying to tell them is be nice to these people now and they won't shoot you in the future. It's much harder to shoot someone who's paid for your daughter's bat mitzvah, you know, than in the... but but the real problem here was the, is that they're they're addicted to this kind of insulation equation. You know this idea that you know they have to earn enough money now to insulate themselves from the problems they've created by earning money in this way. And there's no way out of that. They don't see they're stuck in a feedback loop. You can't earn enough money to insulate yourself from the shit that you've done to people by earning money in that way. It's way better to just, you know, rather than doubling down on this extractive, dominating, monopolistic policy, what you want to do is turn around the other way, you know, and make the world a place that you don't need to escape from. Named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT, Douglas Rushkoff is a professor of media theory and digital economics at the City University of New York. He is one of the original cyberpunks, a friend of Timothy Leary's and a titan of technology journalism who coined the terms viral media, you know, things going viral, along with digital native and social currency. His bestsellers include Coercion, Present Shock, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, 
Program or Be Program, Life Incorporated, and Media Virus. And his famed PBS Frontline documentaries include Generation Like, The Persuaders, and Merchants of Cool. He is also the host of the Team Human podcast, and Rushkoff has a new fire in his belly. You'll, you'll definitely hear that in the interview when it comes to the world of billionaire and trillionaire preppers. And that really comes across in his new book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. A warning, we do go on quite a few tangents because I just like talking about old cyberpunk stuff, but we do get into the book proper by the end, and I'm sure you'll enjoy all of our asides. So here is my interview with Douglas Rushkoff. It's always a intense pleasure to get a chance to spend any time with you. Uh, oh, dude. Yeah, I've been a big fan of yours for ever and ever. Like, you know, I grew up in a trailer in the woods, and the cyberpunk ethos was one of the things that said, hey, did you know that there are people who are different out there and you could hang out with them on the internet? This book, this most recent book, I was like, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. I'm going to tell everybody all these things that are, I'm already, already tweeted about it this morning because I couldn't get over how you were making me insane with rage. <laughs> and, but also I was laughing at billionaires, which is a good mix. It's a good peanut butter chocolate. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. People laugh because, uh, you know, it, it's, it's horrific. But so pathetic when you see <laughs> what these guys actually are. How could you be so wealthy and so smart, yet so stupid and pathetic to believe that you're going to like seal yourself in a, you know, pleasure dome in New Zealand or something or <laughs> actually rise above the chrysalis of matter as pure consciousness in this lifetime and have a satisfying experience and that that's an easier path to satisfaction than just making the world a little bit better. <laughs> I, you all the way. I, I love thinking them as billionaire preppers because I came, I come from prepper people and I think my dad was a prepper his, his, his entire life. My dad has, a, has been a prepper and I lived in that world where, you know, you were learned how to do this, learn how to do that. We got to have a bunker. He bought those books that you could get that would show you where the most likely the fallout would be in the United States and right. the, the nuclear war survival guides and stuff like that. And so I'm very familiar with prepper world. My uncles, all of them were in that world and look, reading your book, I'm like, oh, okay, if they had had this kind of resources, this is what they do with it. At a minimum, they get they get a very nice bunker. But when you started getting into the parts where I was like, this is, are you familiar with the game Bioshock? Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. It was like word for word, some of the things that you talk about in the book, they're like, what if we built an underwater city where all the rich people go, there are no laws of God or man, we reinvent everything, we just have to worry about the leaks because nature's a problem to solve, not a thing to live in harmony with. And uh, yeah, bring in all the scientists and the experts too, and maybe some people to fix stuff. And uh, that's how we can, I was just like, y'all, this Bioshock came out 15 years ago. They, that's uh, And it's all based off Anne Rand, like the, the guy in Bioshock is Andrew Ryan. Right. <laughs> I, that kills me. That kills me that they're like, what, they play that game and think, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's go for that. That seems like a good starting point. <laughs> like cautionary tales become instruction manuals for a certain class of people, and that blows my mind. I know. Well, yeah, between Bioshock and Walking Dead, and and you know, they like look at they look at Ready Player One and think, you know, that looks pretty good. 
<laughs> we'll just take a stack people up in trailers and plug them into VR and profit off what's left. It kind of works. Yeah, they're like watching Blade Runner, and they're like, yeah, some of us live off-world, then we make robots to do the rest, and might as well make pleasure models. And while we're at it, they can only live four years. They couldn't get – because they might get emotions. And we were we just got around the revolt thing. And I've heard that before. Like, you'll hear – they'll mention, like, Ender's Game and, and Foundation and things. And I'm like, you know these are, like, cautionary tales, right? No, they don't. And I think part of what happened is, you know, it may not have been so bad before digital – but I feel like what, what digital has done is it's kind of uh, reinforced this idea that you can go meta on everybody else. You know, digital is a symbol system. You know, it, it, that's the real difference between like a record and an and a MP3. It's MP3 is a symbol system. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's code. And so it's kind of gone meta. And they lived through, you know, they lived through Web 2.0, where instead of being a business, you become, you go meta and you become the aggregator of other businesses or go meta on them and become the aggregator of aggregators, you know. So, or or financialization, you know, there's the, the stock, which is kind of an abstraction of business. Then you've got the derivative of the stock and the derivative of the derivative. And the the digital sphere really does uh, – uh, it kind of amplifies or extends that ability. It really kind of, you know, reifies this, this going meta on everything else to the point where, I mean – even Zuck, you know, Zuck, I just heard him on, on friggin' Joe Rogan, you know, even Zuckerberg, when his subscriber – reach a peak, you know, subscriptions on Facebook start slowing and public opinion starts turning. What does he do? He literally goes meta, meta, <laughs> you know, and he just takes some terms that people don't VR, AR, Web3, crypto, yeah, AI, that's meta. You know, <laughs> it's just going to rise above, you know, and it's, 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 it's both, it, it's, it's kind of sad to me, but so funny that they just like took Stuart Brand at his word. He said, you know, you're, we're as gods and we may as well start acting like them. And they're like, oh, right, we're gods. We're one level above humanity. You know, humanity is just another engineering problem to solve with the technologies that we build from above. You know, we'll be humane to these people. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll develop humane technologies, but it's still... People are the little things at the bottom that 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 the smart people, whether they're good or evil, are gonna are gonna manipulate. You know, they've all gone from zero to one. They're 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 you know uh, uh, they're they're up there. You know, with the gods looking down at the little you know human beings are like iron filings. You know, moving between their magnet poles. And they they, they a lot of this is portrayed as. The first time this has happened, or something, and it just to me, it's, this feels like the mall. To like the you, this is the mollification of the internet. We build a mall. That's a meta business where businesses are inside our business, and then, well, you have a food court, and that's people have the kind of conversations you can have at a food court. That's pretty much discourse on Facebook, <laughs> and then, and then like, well. It kind of reached a peak. Like, uh, this is we pretty much got as many people as going to come to the mall as possible. Well, let's go meta. We'll have a movie theater in the mall where people can go right. to fantasy lands. <laughs> it just feels like I've seen this before. Right. We'll have a movie <laughs> in the mall about a mall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. Let me let me back up. I want to talk about some things in this book that, that hit me really hard. I want to start with something you say up front, and I think this is great about sort of introducing who you are. What do you mean, Douglas Rushkoff, when you say you're a humanist, not a futurist? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I got interested in these digital technologies for what they were doing, not what they were like gonna do someday. I was never trying to predict the future. I was just looking where are people having the most fun? You know, I was a I was a theater director who had gotten fed up with how much it cost to, you know, ticket prices for I was doing three penny opera where the cheapest seat was like 70 bucks. I'm like, what what am I doing here? And the predictability of the story structure, you know, the beginning, middle and end, reinforcement of cultural values. And then I saw people playing, you know, my most weird ass psychedelic friends are out playing on the internet, you know, and, and, you know, building, building new things. And in, in, God, they were moving out to California and getting jobs at Intel, you know, and working at Intel and Apple all day. And then at night, you know, scraping the peyote buds off cactuses and going to <laughs> raves and, you know, doing fractals. And so for, for me, it was like, oh, there's an alternative. There are people having fun. There's a, a, a kind of a counterculture that's alive and doing such cool things. And, you know, and yeah, I guess it was stuff that we would all be doing later. So that if I was writing about people, you know, on the well or playing with VR or going to raves or interested in digital tech, you know, that because it hadn't happened yet in the East Coast, you know, first, I spent a bunch of years, they would just laugh me at. I would try to pitch a story to an editor or a book and they'd be like laughing at me. My first hmm. book, this book, Siberia, my first book on the internet was canceled in 1992 because Bantam Doubleday Dell thought the internet would be over by 1993 when the book was supposed to come out. <laughs> So, you know, when you write like that, or I wrote a book called, you know, Media Virus that was about viral media and all before we really had a term for it, then it happens. So then, you know, the people start inviting me in as a futurist. Oh, you predicted what was going to happen. It's like, I didn't predict this. I watched it happen. I was just doing it from a cultural perspective. But there was a really interesting flip that you're kind of alluding to here, which is when, you know, the, the an original internet story, for those of us who cared about it, was a cultural story. It's like, the, the what are the, the wild new potentials of the collective human imagination? Yeah. You know, that networked together with this stuff, we are becoming capable of thinking together in a profoundly new way. So it was all about the sort of the possibilities, the unknown, the creative potentials of human beings. But then, you know, once by like 93, 94, when Wired Magazine came around and kind of re contextualize this whole thing um, instead of as this kind of cultural renaissance as a, a digital economic revolution, then the object of the game became how do I bet on the future? You know, so, so at that point, you're not into uh, uh, possibility. Anybody who's betting and investing is into probability. How do I increase the probability that my bet is going to work out well? And that's when the technology slowly changed from these tools to express human creativity to tools to operate human beings. How do we make people more predictable? And that's when, and you were there for it, uh -huh. eyeball hours and stickiness of websites and, and you know, the, the same edge conferences where they're talking about, you know, creative 
possibilities of science, they're, they're doing behavioral economics, which is, you know, manipulation of people. And so that's sort of the, that's the turn. But yeah, people would always hire me to say, oh, we want you to come and talk about the future, the digital future. And I would say, oh, I'll do that. I remember I went to South by Southwest in like 96, and they wanted me to talk about the future. So I called my talk, Why Futurists Suck. <laughs> and it was about how these futurists, mainly on the pages of Wired Magazine, they were all just business consultants trying to propagandize a future where you need to hire them in order to know what's going on. You know, and so I was always sort of an enemy of futurism. And then you see them now, they're all over LinkedIn, you know, futurist and keynote speaker. <laughs> it's like, what kind of a job is that? I'm a futurist and keynote speaker. <laughs> There's enough going on on the ground right now that if we were more concerned with that than this, than this uh, but that's the, the, that's the mindset. That's the digital mindset, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to navigate myself toward a digital future where I'm in charge. Yeah, I, I got this. My I, I went to school later in life, and so I. But I was in journalism school, getting ready to get a journalism job. I remember we had somebody. We went to a conference, and the somebody from um, a newspaper in Kansas. They came and showed us all the cool stuff they were doing with tech that we had never heard of. They were doing video, and they were uh, comments from people, and they could get interaction with the audience and break out a story with all this interactive content, and then. When I graduated and got my first job, Facebook arrived right about that time. It was already in campuses, but it was like the newspaper wanted a Facebook page. And it just came so – I, I just walked into I, – I stepped on board a ship as it was going down. It was very bizarre to be part of it. And there was no desire to expand out and experiment and make cool stuff like I had seen in that conference. And – they were like, well, it just needs to be, you know, people are all on Facebook. We got to put the newspaper in Facebook somehow. And we got to moderate those comments. It was just mm. being part of that chaos. So I have my own axe to grind. But that moment you're talking about, that moment is really important, you know. And our, you know, our, our tech writers did not rise to the occasion. You know, I, I remember there was that the, the, the moment the New York Times called me. I wrote about this in the book even. New York Times called me as, I was the internet, you know, counterculture writer guy, but there was no one else writing about the net, and or not well anyway. And the, the New York Times called me the morning before the AOL Time Warner merger to say, we want you to write the piece on AOL, you know, uh, buying Time Warner. And I'm like, Dude, I'm not a business writer. I'm a fucking internet kid. I'm a I'm a cyber boy. It's like, and they're oh, but but you're the only you know you write about this because this is the new synergy of old and new media. You can really, as a media thinker, you can write this. So I look at the situation and I realize, oh look, AOL is cashing in its chips. Their subscriber, <laughs> you know, base is peaked. Just like you know, it's just like Facebook now. You know, and Steve Case realizes he's better better cash in his his inflated digital stocks before they crash. So he's going to go buy a real company like Time Warner with wires and amusement parks and cable and a movie studio. So I write that, you know, that this probably means that the dot-com crash is imminent because the biggest company in the dot-com boom is now cashing in. 
And they call me that afternoon and they say, we can't publish this. This is crazy. We showed it to the people at the business page and they say, you are literally insane. That this is an angry, insane piece. And I'm like, look, if the business people are so sure, why don't you have them write the op-ed, right? So they wrote theirs. I published mine in the Guardian of London. And duh, who was right? And the reason I was right was because of what you're saying, really. It's because they didn't bring any imagination into it. They just put like, oh, let's put Sports Illustrated in Time Magazine and this on the internet, you know, <laughs> just put it up there. And, you know, within months, they're carting the water coolers out of the Time <laughs> time Life building because they're just trying to cut the budget. And not yeah. that the, the, merger, yeah. the merger was a total disaster. They actually split up again a year or two later. And Time Warner's like a shadow of its former self. And it's, it's like because, yeah, they just said, let's just do this digital thing, not realizing that digital is... It's a different media environment. It behaves differently. It just it kind of corporatizes everything if you're not careful. Yeah, it, I love you, you say in the book they were using their in-game currency right. <laughs> to buy to buy something in the real world. The 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 interest in America Online was like the in-game because they didn't have the you know it was all based off of the potential of where this is going to go. And they use their in-game currency to buy something out there in the real world. Yeah, I know. Well, because, yeah, I'm like you. I was like a gamer. I, I I came to the internet like you did through Atari, through Commodore, through Amiga, you know? Yeah. And it's like, oh, I get it. You know, yeah, yeah that Steve Case is is playing Bioshock, basically. He's playing <laughs> and he's got this in-game, right, in-game internet currency, you know, not end-game, which is something up, but the in-game, it's like the fake money that he's got, how much can he, how many, how many Lindens can he cash in you know, <laughs> for, for money? It's like, it's same with Bitcoin or something. These are in-game, these are game currencies that, uh, you know, they're all Doge. You know, Doge is the truest. Yeah, hey, all of it, all of yeah. it. I'm with you in the book. You talk about the early early tech culture was like shareware and mm. uh, teaching each other and learning things and sharing things. And the people that were moving out to do that work and be in that world were psychonauts and Wiccans and deadheads mm -hmm. and people who wanted to, who, whose interest was reality and playing with reality and interested in, in how many Venn diagrams can I put on top of myself to, <laughs> to see how different ways of being a person and yeah. when that got big enough, the AOL Time Warner thing comes along, and it's such a catastrophe of, that there's the, like the investors are now like, okay, look, I got to have a say in this going forward. And that leads us to this thing. Before we could talk about it, though, there's one thing you say in there, and I love this so much. I want people to carry this with them. When you first learned about read versus read write, that that gave you a different lens on the entire world. Oh, just tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it was weird, you know. And I had already played with computers a little bit at, in high school, you know, doing basic and basic extensive on terminals and all. And then I kind of left it behind. And when I was in college, writing my thesis, you know, I go to the we had these places called computer centers. Nobody could afford their own computer, but you'd go to a computer center and you'd have a CRT monitor of some kind connected to a mainframe, you know, and you'd have, you know, partitions on a drive and you'd save your stuff on there. And I, I was typing my thesis into this thing so that I could use some cut and paste abilities. And at the end, I had a call over. They, there were these grad students who worked 
in the computer center to like lean over your shoulder and show you what to do. And I'm like, how do I, wh where do I save it? And and she's like, oh, well, you can save it either, you can save it as a read-only file or as a read-write file. And I'm like, what does that mean? She goes, well, a read-only file means someone can, can, you know, they can read what you've written, but they can't edit, they can't change your file. Or read-write means they can open it and then change it. And I'm like, wow. And And I go out of there thinking, Look at how much of the world, how much of media has been saved as read-only when it could have been read-write. Like the money in my, in my wallet, right? That's read-only. But And they have a law to make it not read-write because otherwise it crashes their system. They don't want, or television. I've been living in a read-only television universe. And what if, you know, we didn't really have VCRs and that stuff yet, but VCRs and cameras and and TiVos and, and, you know, DV. Now maybe we could have a read, write, tell. What if, what if the digital age was going to move us from a read only media environment to a read, write one? And what has been locked down as read only? Religion is read only. What if it's read, write? And then I look back and go, well, you know, the Jews, that's what they meant by Talmud and hypertext. And you can always add more commentary to the commentary. It's a, it's meant as a read, write religion and what else could be read right and that was what i thought digital was going to do was going to turn our read only institutions into read right ones and it it it, it did in places other places did. uh you got the uh you got the newspaper i remember that so well that lecture where he was showing us he was thinking the person he i forget his name but he was he was working in uh lawrence kansas it was a newspaper at lawrence kansas and he was just one of these cyberpunk dudes that had come in and they gave him the job to revamp their paper. He had this read, write concept He's of the community in Lawrence is, is, is part of our paper. And he was predicting like YouTubers. He was predicting even TikTok kind of things. Mm. Uh, it's interesting to me because it's Lawrence, Kansas, which is where uh, William Burroughs moved, you know, mm. and William Burroughs was like the, he was the guy, the original cut and paste guy, right. Who said that, you know, he, he would, um, you know, he was a beat poet, psychedelic guy. If you've never heard of him, that Naked Lunch was a, a book that he had written that became a Cronenberg movie. But he, what what he was about, William Burroughs used to do. He would like say he would cut up the whole New York Times, the whole front page of the New York Times, into like individual words and lines, and then recombine them randomly and say, "Now let's see what the paper really says." You know, <laughs> so the idea was that you know you you look at the language and the words, and you can find other meanings. Very magical, very very occult in that way. But it, cut and paste was like the the and now everyone on their computer on the under the edit menu has cut and paste and copy and paste. That it's it's like a common act. Activity, but it was like the precursor to a DIY read-write media space. And by refusing to recognize that, it's like, I would argue the reason we're in such a problem now is not that we gave read-write capability to the masses, but that we didn't uh, uh, help the masses understand what to do with them. You know, we didn't engender a read-write culture. We tried to maintain a read-only culture in a read-write media environment. So you end up with people saying, do the research, and then tweeting the most crazy connections of things because they didn't really gain the capability that this age requires. I feel you very strongly on this, like because obviously that's big in my wheelhouse and the things I write about. The 
people who were on the, you know, back when the, when the entire internet was the dark web, basically, <laughs> you knew that everything was, you knew about the cult of subgenius and you knew that everything was fun and games and some sort of, you had to have a level of critical thinking to, because you knew everybody was playing and lying and making their own content and that guy's page where he says it, uh, Einstein was wrong. You, you know, you know, there's just some dude somewhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's CB radio, it, it, like, it, like expanding out in some new way. You had that sense. And I can tell that there are people who play around and say when, when they do their own research, they're doing it in that way where they kind of feel that sense about you can't trust everything. And oh, this is a mini to mini thing going on. I know that that's not an expert, but it's not everywhere. It's that the future's here, but it's not evenly distributed, except it's media literacy is is not evenly distributed and i feel that everywhere that's why do your own research means a lot of different things to a lot yeah. of different people but it's not undemocratic to suggest that you know a, a a professional journalist who's using you know research methods and getting sources might have a a more accurate depiction of reality than you know the person in their garage you know spouting off their opinion about what they think the the Alaskan harp station is doing to the weather. <laughs> I remember that that actually that immediately shocked me into remembering back in the early days of like finding those uh, those number stations online where you could listen to them uh, speak out the numbers and we all had to figure out like what do you think is going on there what are they. Are those nuclear codes? Is that is that some is that an alien invasion? Is this this is this spies talking to each other? Man, I, I miss those days. I do too, but it was safe to do it late at night with Art Bell. You know, it was like <laughs> yeah. a contained entertainment <laughs> community, not this desperate. You know, uh, uh, right, we've got a caller here from Baltimore who says that Bigfoot is talking to him through his soup. Let's get him. He was totally okay. <laughs> He would let anybody on. He would sit back and go, tell me a little bit more about what's going on with your soup there. I loved um, it, though. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I did, too. I love that. Turn to our program. You tell this story, and man, do you hook me? You hook me by the nose. I was with you wherever you where you went. You were invited to give a lecture, and it was weird. Uh, tell me a little this story in any which way you'd like to give it away here on the show. Well, yeah, I mean, it goes back to this whole futurist thing, you know. They call me and they, they to do these talks, you know, as a futurist, and I, I try not to do them unless they're like offering a hell of a lot of money. And this was a crazy high amount to come out to the middle of the desert. It was like a third I calculated. It was a third of my annual salary as a CUNY professor to go and do one talk in the desert for a group of, you know, tech investors. So I'm like, fine, you know, ship me out there. And they fly me out business class with the warm nuts, the whole thing. It's like a <laughs> special, you know, they have warm nuts. It's amazing. It's great. Warm nuts, a large screen, all this. So I go out there and then land in the this airport. And then it's like, you know, three hour drive from there to this, uh, 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 you know, uh, resort facility. And I'm like, 
these rich guys are not driving three hours out of the airport. And then it's like, sure enough, like right as we're like two miles away from this place, we pass this private jet field, you know, and there are these Lear jets and G3s and 4s landing. I'm like, oh, right. That's the way they come to this. And it's this crazy, you know, crazy resort nestled into the mountains of the of, of the desert. And I, I don't see anybody, you know, till morning they come for me in their little matching Patagonia fleece to drive me out to this thing in a, in a little golf cart. And I'm waiting in the green room, you know, kind of preparing my little talk on the digital future, you know, where I usually talk to these billionaire types and I, I want to, you know, instill them with some conscience or talk to them about circular economics and how it's a better long-term business strategy than extraction and crash and burn and whatever they do, their scorched earth monopolist strategy. And instead of bringing me out or miking me up or whatever, these five guys are brought into the green room and they sit around this little table. It's like a poker game. And they start asking me these questions about the future, you know, the typical kind of betting questions, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, augmented reality or virtual reality. And eventually they get around to uh, Alaska or New Zealand. So, the whole rest of the talk is about their bunker strategies. You know, how are they going to survive the event is what they called it. You know, the coming uh, economic catastrophe, climate crisis, a nuclear fallout, uh, uh, you know, pandemic that's going to take the whole world down. And the, the majority of the time they're talking about they know their money's going to be worthless and they want to know how do they maintain control of their security staff when their money no longer has value. So it's this weird, walking dead, awful scenario planning thing. I'm like, do they get robots or shock collars? Or do they the only one with the combination to the safe that has the food? <laughs> this is bonkers. It's bonkers. And these are such well. And I'm just like thinking, my God, these are the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world. Yet they seem um, uh, to believe that the event is an inevitability over which they have absolutely no control, that the best they can do is prepare for the inevitable collapse of society. And I'm trying to tell them, well, you know, the way to get your head of security to take care of you in the future is like, pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today, right? <laughs> and I'm being a little sarcastic with them because I find them so pathetic. But what I'm trying to tell them is be nice to these people now and they won't shoot you in the future. It's much harder to shoot someone who's paid for your daughter's bat mitzvah, you know. But the real problem here was th is that they're, they're addicted to this kind of insulation equation, you know, this idea that, you know, they have to earn enough money now now to insulate themselves from the problems they've created by earning money in this way. And there's no way out of that. They don't see they're stuck in a feedback loop. You can't earn enough money to insulate yourself from the shit that you've done to people by earning money in that way. It's way better to just, you know, rather than doubling down on this extractive, dominating, monopolistic policy, what you want to do is turn around the other way, you know, and make the world a place that you don't need to escape from. And, and, and for people listening, you didn't do that behind a lectern. They, they, they get this weird bait and switch where you were at a table yeah. where you're like, 
surrounded at a table by super richies. Yeah, well, it was only five of them. I only was able to document that two of them were actual billionaires, but the other three may have been. They don't, you can't find out how every much, how much money everybody has, but two of them were billionaires, and the other three were at least close. You know, and they're these kind of tech investors more than they were technologists, but they've certainly bought the. Um, the the you know the tech Kool Aid and really believe that you know how by what year and this is why they hired me rather than a, a, a you know a Navy Seal they wanted to know like by what year will I be able to upload my consciousness to a chip and have it be a continuous experience you know so they're trying to sort of game this out you know the, their 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 escape strategies and what I realized was that that that. You know, I used to want to believe that this is just the way capitalism has has uh, uh, corrupted technology. But when I look back and think about it, I realized that even the technologists, this is how they've been thinking about it all along. I was I was with Timothy Leary when he was reading Stuart Brand's book on uh, Nicholas Negroponte and the Media Lab. And I remember, you know, he was writing all these notes in it and felt tip pen. And then as soon as he was finished with the book, I thought he was going to say, oh, this is great. This is the beauty. But no, he took the book and he threw it across the room and went, Bleh! like, what? What happened? And he goes, first, less than 3% of the names in the index are women. That's how you know they've got a problem. And this is back in the early 90s, before, before people thought like that. And it should have been, but he was thinking like that. And then the second thing he said is, he said, these guys, they want to recreate the womb. That they're, I, I think he said, I think their their mothers probably were were incapable of of predicting, you know, <laughs> of predicting their every need of you know of of being there for them. So now they want to create a kind of a virtual digital bubble that can anticipate every single one of their needs before they have them. And I realize, you know, that's the vision of a technological future that a lot of these guys were building even before. You know, they see humanity is a problem to be solved and avoided with technology. They just want this perfect bubble to live in with, you know, robot, you know, little little robot, you know, sex, sex slaves or whatever to service them so they don't have to deal with the unpredictability of real life. So they had the opposite understanding of technology that you or I might have, you know, where we thought, oh my God, bring it on. This is going to increase the the wild, wonderful, rave-like unpredictability of the human spirit. They're like, oh no, what this is going to do is 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 allow us to live in these perfectly, you know, hermetically sealed virtual environments where the unpredictability of human nature won't impact me anymore. At your at this thing, one of the things I love about this is this uh, being having been around a lot of preppers and, and conspiracy theorists, and for my last book, have spending a lot of time with people who live in conspiratorial communities. One thing that, st- that strikes me is this is such a conspiracy theory prepper, billionaire preppers. It just blows my mind that that they are. What do we do about the event? I went to uh, a thing called the Conscious Life Expo, which was. There were a lot of conspiratorial communities there, and I sat through a three-hour presentation about another group of people who believe in the event that's coming, which is when it's the big reveal, the uh, when all the governments will reveal that we've already been in touch with aliens, right. and that they, they talk about a lot of the movies that we watch 
are, have a little bit of truth in them. And the, the, that's so that when they actually reveal what's going on, we don't just like bleed from the nose and, and light fires. Right. They're slowly breaking it to us, right. giving us little hints and things. Yeah. And it sounds exactly like what, like this thing. Like there's a lot of that of like, there's a thing coming, the event. And it's, you know, if you're a zombie apocalypse person, it's like that. If you're a, a pandemic-y thinking person, you're like that. If you're a, a robot apocalypse terminator, it's this. It's the alien, whatever it is, it's something that's already in the, the zeitgeist in some way. And it's the, the, the event that's coming. Yeah. Well, it's a narrative shape, really, of, of traditional cultures that last 2,000 years since Aristotle identified, you know, crisis, climax, sleep, the kind of the male orgasm curve of narrativity, where you don't want to keep going. If you're playing the game, you're playing the game to win the game. Aha! Finish! You know, and if you're going to ache for a conclusion, if you can't just sustain the weird, ambiguous uncertainty of being human, you'd rather everything end in an event than just keep on going in that weird, you know, uh, <laughs> weird, ambiguous way. <laughs> I'd like to think all this goes back to male orgasm. And this is a, a problem with the, <laughs> there's some like really long arc of history that led to this. Yeah, they got to learn Tantra. That's it. That's the solution. If we can get a tantric <laughs> expert in the room with Mark Zuckerberg, maybe we'll we'll get out of this thing. Maybe that's what meta should all be about, actually. Tantra. Yeah, the new tantric realm. I'll build the tantric. I'll build a tantric realm in meta anyway, because it's going to go meta on me fast yeah. enough. But that's yeah. the movie theater in the mall that met that meta has become. Is <laughs> is the, the exactly the, the tantric parlor? <laughs> exactly. Oh my god. But but they 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 do want it to happen. The good thing about the event, at least the, in the overlap between like Peter Thiel and and uh, uh bannon say there's the idea that that this was another from another science fiction book it's called accelerationism the idea that let's just speed it up and tear it down let's rip off the band-aid of this civilization of game a and get right to game b it's like sim city let's just reboot restart the game that's the kind of techno solutionist fantasy it's like i've got the stack right here the software stack for a new civilization with education plumbing electricity nuclear energy you know seasteading it's all in this stack but to get there we've got to kind of end this one and reboot to that one you know and that's what, but it doesn't work like that you you don't defrag the hard drive of civilization I grew up until I was old enough to leave. I went to a Southern Baptist church, and for my last project, I, I spent time at Westboro Baptist Church, and then I spent time with people who had left it. And they were talking about the event, you know, the Judgment Day, Rapture, Revelation. Like it feels so close to that kind of stuff that it freaks me out that this is part of another group's, a group of billionaires' narrative about what's happening. And they're like, and we can affect it. We can like, catalyze it we can be in control when it happens we'll be on top but instead of doing the 
whatever is in your religious tenets that you need to have checked off. They're checking off these things. They're talking to you about, hey, should I be nice to my security staff? Because they're going to revolt, right? <laughs> and when they revolt, uh, it, <laughs> they're really asking you this. Because another part of the conspiracy thing for me is when we have conspiracy theories on the left, we often think about, I bet there's a room where there's like five people talking about how they're going to survive the apocalypse, trying to divvy up their pieces and move their, then play the chess game. And they are. That blows my mind. <laughs> I know. It's as if there's a room. There is a room. <laughs> I was in you it. You were in the room. <laughs> They're actually talking about it. <laughs> okay. So you talk about the event and there's this other thing that's, uh, I just, I want to make sure people get to hear this. The event and all the things we're talking about leads to something that you have categorized. And I like this and you just call it the mindset. And I know we've been talking about it the whole time, but if you were going to define it in some way, what is this thing that seems to have arrived, thanks to all of these things, the mindset? Well, I guess, I mean, most easily, you know, the mindset is the belief that with enough money and technology, you can insulate yourself from the problems that you're creating with money and technology. <laughs> it's, sort of, it's sort of that. But the mindset, it's like, yeah, so so it, it's it's... What it's that it's that sort of insulation equation that you can somehow outrun all the externalized damage. There's a, a kind of a techno solutionism in the mindset that that humanity is a problem to be solved with technology rather than the other way around. There's uh, an adherence to the kind of the biases of digital code toward abstraction. There's there's an understanding of human relationships merely as kind of market phenomena. And there's there's a an underlying fear of women and nature and black people and indigenous people. It's all complex and dark and natural and wet and scary. And there's a, I guess there's a real uh, almost a fetishization of of IP. Not just because you can own IP and make money on it, but because then you can see your own contributions as utterly unique, you know, and without and without precedence. And there's this this addiction to sovereignty. You know, they want to be sovereign over things, even sovereignty over themselves, which is such an odd concept. That whole notion, self sovereignty, I, I always turn that one around in my head, particularly if I'm stoned or something. It's like self. What does that mean? So you're king of yourself, right? So I'm king and subject. It's the ultimate abstraction, right? It's the ultimate escape that you are not only lording over all of us, but you are lord over yourself. You are like king of this body, this human. <laughs> and when you, you go up to the cloud and you'll still be sovereign of that, of that meat sack over there. It's a really a, a funny one. But yeah, this whole mindset, it ends up being really exponential, really meta, really digital, very kind of zero to one. We are as gods, you know, you know, fixing, uh, you know, fixing reality from above and from a safe remove. And th so the, you have the mindset, thanks to the belief in the event, and you have the mindset. And you've already said it once in our conversation, it makes the people who are in this particular game, who are in this feedback loop, this self-reinforcing feedback loop of selfish isolationism, as you put it, like you are in a, loop, a complete loop now. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the things that create the world that necessitate my escape. So I have to do that more so that I can escape and create so, some sort of pod in the ocean or on an island or in space. You have billion, billionaires like, yeah, a billion dollars is only enough to live in uh, a underwater city. Trillionaires, that's the ones that are actually going to get to go to Mars. So I've got to work really hard 
<laughs> yeah, that was funny. I remember asking them, I said, I thought you guys are going to space. And then one of them said, oh, no, no, we're low-level billionaires. <laughs> low-level billionaires. Oh, Yeah, the best they could do is try to get a seat on Richard Branson's uh, plane. They can't you know, afford to make one themselves. Wow. I never, I can't believe the game goes that high. Here's, uh, before we run out of time, here's something I love too. Of course, since all of this is, a, since they're in the game and since someone is going to try to make money off everything, there are industries that cater to billionaire preppers. I think that's amazing. Uh, you got to spend time with someone who had an idea for a farm kind of thing. Like, give me, give me $3 million buy-in and I got you. I got you. You don't have to think about this anymore. I will give you a way to escape the apocalypse that you think is coming. Uh, tell me a little bit about this Latvian email that you received. Yeah, well, this is weird. This guy, you know, this guy, J.C. Cole, and I, I like him. He's he's one of the first kind of MAGA guys that I became friends with. So on the one hand, he's like a MAGA guy who can't even say Hillary. He calls it, he just says her or she, you know, and, and he's a, a, a believer in all that stuff. But his solution is to build these eco farms. And they're not like high tech, crazy eco farms. They're just regular real farms. But what he's trying to do is to, to, to build farms and teach people to build farms that are actually, um, uh, uh, sustainable by themselves. So he showed me how, you know, most farms that, that like, egg farms they have chickens but they've got no roosters so they can't make the chickens they have to buy the chickens who lay the eggs or farms that grow food most of them don't have seeds they buy these little you know seedlings these little tiny plants from big corporate farms and then you know stick them in the land where they are and he's like that's not going to work so what he wanted to do was build these like really sustainable farms and use biodiesel and all this kind of solar and whatever um old-fashioned but sustainable and get investments from these billionaires who want to then you know they'll be like two or three hours from a city so when the shit hits the fan the event comes the billionaires can come out and live and work the farms you know and live there as community members and they'll have navy seals come out and guard the perimeter but he wants to take some of the money and put it as, as an investment in teaching people how to build these farms because as he sees it you know the more people that know how to build farms like this the fewer people they're going to be at the gates trying to get in you know either begging for a, a food or coming with machine guns to shoot the place down so he even looks at it as part of the defensive strategy the billionaires <laughs> so far, I mean, I tried to find a few for him. They're not interested. No, this is too reasonable. This is too communal. This is too hippie. <laughs> right, exactly. Wait, wait. Some of the money's going to go to teaching other people how to do this? Fuck them. All the money should go to save my thing, you know? And I'm going to have to work on this thing? And there's other people there? No, no, no. They want their own friggin' thing. They want their own, you know, their own giant, you know, uh, uh, network of shipping containers under the ground where one has a heated pool and one one has a solarium and the other has a sex chamber and you know whatever they want their own thing because this is not so much about i don't think it's not so much about survival for them this is wish fulfillment this is fantasy for them this is the secret little kingdom that they always wanted to have and the apocalypse is just the justification to go build like the ultimate man cave in in new zealand <laughs> I love the idea that the diaspora of the wealthy is really just 
the ultimate man cave fantasy. And, and, and <laughs> it's so, I, we didn't even get into the dumbwaiter effect. I will think that every time I unbox anything from now on. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, read the book for that, the dumbwaiter effect. And the real, the real reason Thomas Jefferson built the dumbwaiter had not very little to do with uh, 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 making less work for enslaved people and a whole lot more to do with making it so that you don't see where your food's coming from. It just you know appears automagically like from a Star Trek replicator. There's a whole chapter on this, and you will feel bad about watching unboxing videos afterward. And I mean, this, this book all arcs into you know what's going on, this uh, this relentless conquest and domination and extraction and and relentless everything has to grow everything has to metastasize everything has to i think that by the way every time i see the zuck is using the word meta i'm like you mean metastasize like never stop growing isn't that what that is that what you were get where you got meta from yeah is that how you ruin one of my favorite terms yeah and also you talk about how he loves reveres augustus caesar for breaking the world to build roads weird shit so i'm <laughs> Get the book for all of that. But before we go, I, know I have a bad habit of of jamming out on stuff like this and never even offering anything nice at the end. Um, okay, we're talking. This is what's happening. We're in this phase of information technology and internet stuff, and people m- making spaceships and sh- shooting cars to orbit Mars. Okay, what should what do we do about this? Off the top of your head, all of us out here who see it, who are seeing this and thinking, hmm, this seems problematic, and who aren't going to be invited on the spaceship if they ever make one. So what should we be doing about this train that's headed for the cliff of culture right now? What do you think? Sharpen your pitchforks. <laughs> <laughs> You've got enough stuff laid around the house to build a guillotine. <laughs> Jonathan Lethem said that after he read the book. He goes, I'm sure I'm reading my pitchfork. No, um, I think what we do, once we realize that that winning, as these guys define it, means ending the game, you know, means an end game, um, then we realize, oh, the object of the game is very different. You know, play an infinite game instead. The object of the game is to keep the game going because the game is fun. You don't need to win, right? You don't need to win. Um, and then uh, uh, things shift away from that kind of future perspective of, oh, we're going to sacrifice these people or those ones for the sake of the future in space and instead realize, oh, no, we've got to do it right now. If you're not doing it in the moment, you're not really doing it. And so we get more local. We get more social. We entertain ideas like degrowth. Once you realize, and I know it sounds like it's, it's like sacrilege, once you realize the only reason the market has to grow is because of some rules that we made in the 13th century for, you know, for how capital works and interest-bearing currency and things like that, you realize, oh my God, this is not a human problem. This is an operating system problem that we can actually take the hacker mentality and look at the economy and say, oh, well, what if money was a utility rather than an interest-bearing thing that has to grow? You know, what if we invested locally rather than long distance in these crazy stock markets? What if our life wasn't about saving up enough money to have a retirement where you don't work anymore and instead was about building a community around yourself so there's people who want to take care of you when you're old rather than you having to go at it completely alone. So it's really, it's way simpler um, than it looks. You know, it's it's, uh, restoring mutual aid, learning how to share and borrow with other people, and realizing we are not 
obligated to keep the market growing. The market was there to serve us, not us to serve the market. And once you can flip that, flip your understanding of the market, flip your understanding of money and capitalism, flip your understanding of technology, all these things are there to serve humans. You don't figure out how to make a technology that can extract something from humans. You figure out how to build a technology that can do something for humans. And then everything kind of, um, everything kind of flips. I will work very hard to achieve the future that you're describing. And at the same time, I will have a sharpened pitchfork laying around just in case. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun anyway. At least you get your aggression out before everything collapses, right? No, I mean, obviously you don't. We're all going to die anyway, right? Everyone's going to die anyway. So what do you want to do but show as much compassion and love and connection as possible? And digital technologies can do that. They can really amplify our sense of connection if we program them that way, rather than to amplify our need for um, um, distraction and isolation. It's really, it's really pretty, pretty simple. But the first step, and the reason I wrote the book, is if we can laugh at these guys rather than be afraid of them. If we can laugh, they get smaller, the aspiration gets smaller, and we stop feeling like trying to, you know, model the behavior and instead just, you know, meet our neighbors and have some fun. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, go to youarenotsosmart.com. There's also a link in the show notes inside your podcast player to not only Douglas Rushkoff's work, but to that website, to my new book, How Minds Change, and all sorts of other good stuff. You'll find a link to my newsletter in there as well, which I'll be posting to very soon, I promise. I'm in New York right now, which is why this audio is kind of strange. I'm about to do the book launch for How Minds Change at Caveat on September 20th. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also, we're on Facebook slash youarenotsosmart. And if you'd like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad-free. But at the higher amounts, you get posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. And that opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. Tell everybody you know about the show. It's the easiest way to support it. And check back in in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. <laughs>